2: decide democratically what constitutes a good life and a good society, and how, how do we go through the political process of dismantling the things that we think are unfair in a way that is itself fair?
3: Hello, and welcome to The Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This podcast kicks off a series that I've been working on for a couple months now, actually, um, and feel pretty strongly about, which is this podcast is the first of a four-part series about remobilizing the economy. And, and we chose that word very carefully, mobilizing. This is not like a typical financial crisis. This is not like a normal recession. We have frozen big parts of the economy We have told people they can't supply their labor. We have stopped factories from producing what they produce. We have told businesses they can't let people in the door. We have demobilized huge portions of the economy. And so much like during a war or after, in a different respect a war, we're going to have to mobilize parts of our economy and then we're going to have to have a direction or a set of directions in which we do it. There is going to be so much latent supply, so many people who can contribute who have not been allowed to, so many businesses that have shuttered, so much that we could turn towards making this country better and making the economy better, but also making our lives better. But we will have to decide to do it, and we will have to have a purpose through which we will do it. And so, this series is going to be about different ways we can do that. Different visions, policy packages around which we could remobilize the economy, put people back to work, get money back in people's pockets, but also build a better future. Um, this series is done in partnership with the Omidyar Network, a social impact philanthropy that works to reimagine critical systems and the ideas that govern them and to build more inclusive and equitable societies. And it's also part of a broader series on Vox called The Great Rebuild. You can visit com slash the dash great dash rebuild to get all the podcasts in the series and coming in September, a special issue of our magazine, The Highlight, which will be devoted to how we rebuild the economy in the right way. But the first episode here is one I'm super excited about. So Zach Carter is a senior reporter at HuffPost, where he's covered Congress, White House, and economic policy. be somebody I've trusted on these issues for years. But he just wrote a book this year. It's one of the best books I've read this year called The Price of Peace, Money, Democracy, and the Life of John Maynard Keynes. And I'm going to admit, Something I've told Zach this. When he told me a couple of years ago, he was writing a book about John Maynard Keynes. I'm like, well, that seems like a quixotic, weird thing to do. <laughs> and then he wrote this remarkable biography of Keynes, just an absolutely terrific book that uses Keynes to explore a deeper question, which is, what is an economy for? What is economics for? And he uses the life of Keynes, which is more interesting than a lot of people know, um, the ideas of Keynes, but also the way in which Keynes understood economics to be subsumed to other values, to be subsumed to another vision of society which it was supposed to serve, to explore the, these much more profound ideas. And so it's a perfect qu- uh, question or topic set to start the series because the fundamental question of the series is, one, something Keynes understood and pursued economically, which is how can the government get an economy back on its feet after it has been shattered by outside events or financial panics, wars, pandemics? But number two, what are then the purposes of getting that economy back up on its feet beyond just getting people jobs? How do we think about economics as tied to larger social values or purposes? As always, my email is Kleinshow at Vox.com. Here is Zach Carter. Zach Carter, welcome to the podcast. How are the dogs, Ezra? Assholes, how is <laughs> Pepper? <laughs> <laughs> Pepper's still the, the getting... poor dogs, man. They they had a good life, and then we had a kid. Is what I, happened.
2: Th- that's that's where Pepper is. She's she's I think mostly adjusted, but um, but you know she does this thing where she won't let the kid touch her. She just sort of runs around in protective circles around her, uh, which I I feel like that's that's okay. It's way better than where we were six months ago.
3: Cat, the, the, the weird thing about the dogs is now my relationship with them is much worse because we also live in a place where um they just like sit looking out the window, barking at things like it's their job because I think they do believe it to be their job, but... Calvin has a great relationship with my son, and they love each other. And he just runs around the house at all hours, screaming the word "doggy," looking for them. Um, but but you know my my other dog uh, Patsy's a little shyer, and her her life has been completely wrecked
2: by the situation. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big adjustment. It's just a big adjustment. Uh, but, yeah. But that's that's how that's how life goes. Dogs. They they like that we're <laughs> home all the time now. That's been good for them. Yeah, I, yeah. Quarantine's definitely been good for Pepper. I, I feel like the dogs in general have had a, have had a good quarantine. I, I saw that pretty much all of the shelter dogs in in New York had been adopted, so it's now actually very difficult to get your hands on a on a dog in New York City, which is the opposite of the way it usually is. So uh, you know, it's it's not all bad news. Yeah, that's nice. the The other thing about it is that um, I think
3: now all the time. Do you remember there was a Slate article that said uh, if you're about to have a kid, don't get pets. I just now think about that article all the time um, because <laughs> it's like you feel so bad, like where this these creatures are sort of near the center of your world and they're getting so much affection from you. And then all of a sudden you have no more affection left to give them. And, you know, they're getting walked. Their life is perfectly fine. But, you know, you're failing in like a fundamental energy exchange that you had with them and they were used to. And you, there's nothing you can do about it. And you can't really explain to them why it's happening. And that presumably, eventually, it will go back to normal and or like the little creature will become um, able to give them more affection directly. But it's uh, it, it makes me feel very guilty. So that's how my relationship is with them. Uh, like so many of the relationships in my life, completely suffused with guilt.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, I think dogs are com- complex emotional creatures. They're They're able to handle adversity and to weather it more so than we give them credit for. And I think they enjoy having a new role to play, frankly. So I, I wouldn't feel totally guilty, you know, as it seems like Calvin at least is having having a good time, right? I don't think any of that's true. You're like you're like the parent who's like, oh, gone to live on the farm. <laughs> no, this is just all been bad
3: for them. <laughs> but that brings me to, to a question I wanted to ask you, which is related to this conversation. What is the purpose of economics?
2: Very, very good question. That is that is the (laughs) best segue, right? Yeah, that is that is frankly, I've done um, quite a bit of press for this book. That's the hardest question anybody's given me. Um, That question would be I'll I'll answer with a dodge. It depends on when you ask the economics profession and which economists you ask. If you asked John Maynard Keynes, he would have said economics is the tool through which we achieve social justice and a uh, harmonious society. Uh, I think if you ask most economists today, they would say it's a way to prevent governments from running out of money or something like that, a way to prevent financial crises. For Keynes, Keynes was first and foremost a philosopher, and he came to the economics profession when it was um, relatively young as a profession. Before Keynes, there, there were people who specialized and called themselves economists, but for the most part, the great economists were also great philosophers or great literary theorists or, or great writers. And economics was sort of one of the fields in which they specialized. People like John Maynard Keynes or or even Isaac Newton, uh, and and John Locke, um or Adam the, Smith. Or Adam Smith, of course, you know, Adam Smith probably in some corners of academia, considered a better moral philosopher than he is an economist. So these people were interrogating these economic questions as part of a broader social theory, uh, a part of a broader philosophical project. And Keynes, I think, is really the last of these economists to be to be doing that that kind of project after Keynes economics becomes very specialized it becomes very mathematical and very technical and divorced from these these moral questions it sort of gets some of its prestige from the idea that you could solve economic questions independently of social and moral questions and for Keynes that would have been bewildering that that's just not the way that he looked at the world and i think for our own world today you know the central problems of economics have changed over time but the basic tools and and sort of language of the profession have not Keynes thought in the 1920s and certainly by the 1930s that scarcity was no longer the chief problem that economics was trying to solve but when i took econ 101 and Let's see, 2002. You know, the the first thing I learned about economics is that economics is the study of um, scarce resources and unlimited wants. So, scarcity is just built into to the project of, of the economics uh, sort of field. Keynes didn't think that was the the primary issue that economics was trying to solve. He thought economics was trying to solve. War and inequality. Inequality is a secondary issue to war because it was something that he thought was sort of fueling violence and international disharmony. But today, I, you know, I I think... <laughs> I, I'm preoccupied with those problems myself today because I, I think they're important now and my political views sort of align with a lot of Keynes' political views. But I certainly think the study of scarcity um, needs to be revisited.
3: So I want to pick up on a couple things in that, but but let me actually pick up on the idea that his study of economics is in certain ways motivated by the problem of war. Because one of the the threads of the book that, that was really informative for me was understanding how practically thinking about managing domestic economies was somewhat motivated by a desire to stop seeing the management of domestic economies done by beggaring thy neighbor and creating the conditions for for war. So international economics was often being used as a domestic subsidy program. Could, could you talk a little bit about that backdrop, both the backdrop of, of war that motivated him, but also the backdrop of mercantilism and kind of national interest economics that motivated him
2: Sure well Keynes grows up as a diehard free trader and he he has uh he has these very deep uh, emotional commitments to free trade that predate his understanding of economics he sees free trade as sort of a uh, an international ideal where where different societies are able to exchange goods and ideas and and grow and and be sort of mutually prosperous and he cherishes that ideal throughout his life that ideal is is really tied up with his his vision of the british empire which he also sees i think the way many american exceptionalists today see the united states um he sees the british empire as a, a you know this this beacon of of light and hope that that's bringing democracy and prosperity around the globe and World War One is this very shocking, difficult, catastrophic emotional experience for Keynes because he comes to revisit all of these things and he comes to see the British Empire not as a, a beacon of light and harmony, but as a, a self interested and in many ways predatory uh, enterprise. And he he sees this firsthand at, at at Paris during the negotiations over the Treaty of, of Versailles, which ended ended World War One. But he. Became a serious economist in the war. Uh, he was, he was in charge of British financial policy and British war finance, which was a very, very important position as a war maker. He was involved intimately in discussions over military strategy and how to manage the British economy and the British war machine. You know, if, if, when you're running the economy at full tilt, you have to make decisions about whether you need more wool or more uh, or more wheat or more soldiers. And uh, and he was he was part of that discussion and considered the, the brightest mind in in the British government uh, on, on those questions. He also came to believe that the war itself was totally immoral and unjustifiable. So he finds himself in this situation where he is managing the British economy when, when you're doing war economics like this, that that type of total war economics, it is no longer a free market economy. Everything is being managed by the state, and that was very that was very commonplace in in war economies, really through World War II. The United States has been running you know market economies alongside its its war economies pretty much throughout all of the post war era. But uh, this this was essentially a socialized economy where the government was directing everything, and Keynes came to look at the economy from the perspective of a British imperial manager. And he sort of started to think about economics not as a set of actions from different atomized individuals making choices in a market, but as a system that could be managed uh, from above, frankly. And that's where macroeconomics comes from. The, The idea of macroeconomics did not exist when Keynes First started writing and thinking about the economy. It's something that comes out of Keynesian thinking, which comes, I think, from the fact that Keynes was involved in in the British war economy. He was a pacifist, uh, which is quite, you know, it's it's, it's the, his life is full of contradictions and ironies, uh, like any great life. But he was a pacifist who who ran the British war machine economically, and he wanted economics to be used as the thing that could prevent war, that it, people would resort to violence. If you didn't use other tools of statecraft to prevent violence, and he he, he thought that economics was the tool to uh, to prevent that, uh, and he and he he came up with all sorts of different ideas over the course of his life. I mean, he changed his mind over and over again. Uh, I hope I'm not getting too far afield from your question, though, Ezra. I, no, I, I, but the, the part <laughs> how,
3: the part that you've not really touched on here is actually the the competitive economic dimension. So there's one world where he's shaped by war and particularly by the the catastrophes of World War One. but there's something else that, that you track him as recognizing, which I thought was really interesting, which is the way different countries, different economies are using punitive international economics because they're facing domestic economic troubles. And that he begins to recognize that, among other things, if you stop tying your economy to gold and recognize you can do a lot of domestic economic management, some of the incentive to impose heavy reparations payments on people you've defeated in battle, some of the incentive to do tariffs and other kinds of beggar thy neighbor trade uh, initiatives, begins to dissipate. The good domestic economic management will take away one of the self-interested reasons for war, which is, or or at least um, uh, aggressive economic um, policies, which is that they. Help you even to say hurt your neighbor at least potentially.
2: Yeah, th- there's there's a scramble for resources that's built that's built around scarcity. So if if you don't have enough stuff, you've got to get it from somewhere else. Under the gold standard and under um, the terms that were imposed at the end of the, of, of World War One, everybody except the United States has massive massive debts. Germany owes reparations debts to other countries. Um, Britain and France owe massive debts to uh, France owes them to both the United States and Britain. Britain owes them to the United States. So. Uh, these countries have to produce things in the real world of of you know wheat and sheep and lumber and bricks and they have to produce those things in order to create money which they can then send to the united states uh, in in germany's case that the money has to be sent to france and to and to britain um, who then have to get that money and send it to the united states so there's this there's this financial economy that kind of exists supervening on the real economy but it's sucking resources out of the real economy and shipping them over to the United States which at the end of World War one is the richest country in the world so that makes no sense to Keynes I mean he's par- partially he's he's thinking about this as a uh, you know a, a self-interested british patriot you know why are we sending all, all of our money abroad to the united states but he also sees a you know a, a clear moral problem here germany has been and france have been devastated by the war they need actual resources in order to be rebuilt britain's in better shape they've they've lost a lot of of workers a lot of people have just been killed but they haven't had their you know their fields and their factories devastated the way uh, the economies on the continent have been so he he sees immediately that trade becomes linked to these international diplomatic agreements from from the war. And he sees immediately that the way that these economies have to get resources is always tied to trade. They can't just get people to go to work unless they're going to violate the terms of of the sort of gold standard orthodoxy. One of the reasons he becomes an advocate of deficit spending, um, which he does long before he writes the general theory and comes up with a sophisticated scientific justification for it, is that it just seems politically necessary. All these countries are in debt, but they have they have to spend somehow, otherwise their economies won't exist. So they just will have to go into debt if they're going to do anything. And deficit spending, in a way, becomes sort of an alternative to predatory trading relationships. If, if you can Get your resources by just taking on debt and paying people to go to work in in, uh, in in your domestic sphere. Then you don't have to just seize other countries' markets with you know fancy you know price tariffs and and exchange rate maneuvering and, and all of the rest. Uh, and he actually says in the General Theory in in 1936, he says you know international trade has become a way for countries to undercut each other and advance. Parochial interests at the expense of international harmony, and that's a huge problem because Keynes has this very deep, deep feeling about the moral imperative to to free exchange of ideas across to do internationalism. It breaks his heart, really, and uh, and he wants to see a world where people can exchange ideas and learn from each other and and cooperate across boundaries, and he he sees the economics orthodoxy of the time which he's really attacking at every possible level on the general theory. He's not just talking about deficits, he's attacking the entire project. And he he says, look, this is this is making us go to war. This is making preventing us from from living together. And we have to we have to find some different tactics for management of these economies, otherwise we're just going to be at each other's throats forever. I
3: want to go into some of the wonkier, more specific parts of Keynes' thinking. But, but before we do, you, you spend time in the book in a way that I think is important on the milieu he comes out of, and in particular in the parts of it that tie him and tie his thinking to something beyond economics. So can you talk a bit about the Bloomsbury Group and the role they played for him?
2: Sure. Keynes comes of age at the turn of the century in a very uh, influential philosophical community at Cambridge University. His friends are people like Bertrand Russell, who is one of the, the most important philosophers of the 20th century, people like Ludwig Wittgenstein, who is an even more important philosopher of the 20th century. And they're all students of this fellow, uh, G.E. Moore, who was a moral philosopher. And G.E. Moore's great contribution to the history of moral philosophy was sort of a reinvigoration of Platonism. Um, the the idea that um, there are things that are intrinsically good, and that a good life is built up out of uh, experiencing those intrinsically good things. It was a, it was an attack on, frankly, the worldview that came up alongside the economics profession over the nineteenth century, which was called utilitarianism. Um, utilitarianism uh, is, I, th- I think, the simplification of it is you know the greatest good for the greatest number. But it's a very economics-y way of thinking about morality. Um, you can you can reduce all of human experience to the ability to create happiness or pleasure or meaning. Or, uh, you know, p- different utilitarians take different approaches to this. Um, but the, the important thing is to maximize the pleasure or the happiness through whatever actions you're doing. And Keynes was uh, reacting against that and said, no, there are certain things... Uh, Called organic unities. They they use these <laughs> these wonderfully uh, opaque t- topics. But an organic unity is something that's just good and indivisibly good. It's just what it is. Um, you know, a, a fine evening, a great a great work of art, gazing into your lover's eyes. These are things that can't be broken down into component parts and then reconstructed in some other way uh, in order to to maximize some some other project and. He thinks that a good life is built up of these things, but th- this is not a mathematical science. This is not a project that can be done with equations. Uh, you know, comparing one great work of art to another is is not, uh, you know, you can't just go to pitchfork.com and say whether it's, you know, well, this one's a 9.6 and that one's a 9.8, so it's better. Yeah, no, you have to use Metacritic. Right, right exactly. <laughs> so you, he was- You want, you want an aggregate. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm dating myself. I don't think people read Pitchfork anymore. But uh, when I was coming of age, it was a very influential website. But that that project of quantification, he he reacted to very, very strongly. And it was, you know, this was a, a very elite crowd of fancy intellectuals at Cambridge University um, who then went out into the world and promptly became broke artists. So Lytton Strachey was one of his best friends. Uh, at at Cambridge, um, became one of his best friends after school. But uh, through Lytton, he meets people like Virginia Woolf and E.M. Forster and these these very prominent artists in 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 the British intellectual scene. But they're not prominent yet. Virginia Woolf doesn't become a famous writer until 1925 or so, and he's friend and she's friends with Keynes beginning in you know, 1906. So they have they have this long period of sort of intellectual and artistic collaboration and cohabitation these people are all also just romantically totally um uh, just it seems enormously stressful to me they're just always sleeping with each other and and getting into fights and it, it's very scandalous for for the time but i think for modern uh modern readers the the thing that really just stands out is how stressful it must have been um but but they're always sleeping with each other um but they also seem very closely connected to each other so they they'll have these affairs and break up and and then have affairs again but they all stay tied together and there's this sense that they're part of this very important project i mean part of this is is the, you sort of the delusions of grandeur that that every young person has but um but i think that the intensity of their emotional entanglements together helps to sort of cement the idea that they're engaged in a very important project otherwise it wouldn't be worth all this this trouble right it wouldn't be worth all of the emotional trauma they have to go through to be continue to be friends together and so they they feel like they're part of this big international scene and and people in this in this milieu include virginia wolf's sister vanessa bell who's Constantly going off to to visit other great painters of the day, she she visits you know Pablo Picasso at his his studio at, at Montparnasse, and of course the the writers in this in this group end up becoming uh, quite significant later on as well. I think one of uh, one of Keynes's lovers, uh, probably the most significant lover in his life before he meets his his wife Lydia Avakovas, is a a painter named Duncan Grant, and he goes off and is staying with Gertrude Stein at Paris too. So there's this international milieu where these people believe that they're part of a a shared international project, that that the people who are involved with arts and letters are not just engaged in neat little projects, they are actually engaged in a political act that is bringing countries closer together, that is breaking down, particularly in Europe, the medieval barriers between peoples that have been erected over the course of centuries. And that through the power of, of this pure beauty that that they're all pursuing, uh, they're going to create uh, an era of, of international harmony. And it's totally naive, right? In 1914, there, this war breaks out, and the entire the entire scene is is shattered, and they they are deeply emotionally wounded by this, and the that experience of the war is what transforms the the people in the Bloomsbury set who become famous important artists do so I think because the war forced them to to confront the real world in a way that they had not they had not done before so and i'd include Keynes in that So i want to i, I, I want to well. back
3: up into something in that because i think it's important and, and i'll just note as a as a side thing i think it's funny that, that you read this and you're like oh it's so stressful because i read it and i'm like oh i'm so i'm so boring <laughs> i'm like I'm so boring like here's canes doing he's doing a lot of work too but just having you know in this in this fun artist community um they're all living art in a way, right? They're they're trying to 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 be artists and live in a way that is artistically authentic. And something that you were talking about in terms of the philosophical underpinnings of the group, the way it it's in a, a platonic tension with utilitarianism. I was going to get to this later in our conversation, and I hope I don't end up jumping us around in a way that is confusing for for folks listening. But but I think this is really important and really important to understanding like the challenge of Keynes to contemporary economics. So utilitarianism, right? You know, you want to maximize utility. That is still the language economics uses. People have different definitions of utility, but in part because nobody's quite comfortable with anybody else defining utility. What we end up defaulting to in economics and then in public policy is what I would call consumer preferences, right? The maximum utility is revealed by whatever people actually do when you like leave them alone with their money. And there are a lot of people, myself included, who think it's a really thin and shallow understanding of what people want out of life, right? It's the same way in which you know, Facebook or Twitter creates an algorithm and they say, well, people just keep clicking on, retweeting, et cetera, the most extreme or outrageous or emotional things. So that shows that that's what's really giving them the most utility. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing it. And then there are people who say, that's ridiculous. Like that's You've addicted people. You haven't found their definition of a good life. But the problem on the other side, which is why people, I think, end up going down that track or feeling more comfortable with that track with all of its imperfections, is that the Platonically infu- influenced Keynesian or Galbraithian, which you bring up later, version of this can feel extremely paternalistic, right? It requires someone or some polity to make a decision about what the good life really is. So, the reason I want to pull the Bloomsbury Group is that Keynes often, in in his economics, like it seems to me um, from things I've read of his and 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 things you have in the book, like what he wants to do is create an economy that will foster a vibrant healthy artistic and intellectual sphere right that he, he like wants an economy that will make every person into a british aristocrat and wants to shape economic investment to do that and no matter what it is you want your economy to do and this is a big part of like what this mobilization series we're talking for is going to be like so if you're going to have the government mobilizing huge quantities of economic resources somebody's to decide what kind of mobilization is valuable what you're actually trying to build And one of the things that the sort of economic utilitarians did, or even the Samuelsonian um, Keynesians, which we should talk about at some point, is like they were able, I think, effectively to say, you don't want to trust the government or these pointy-headed academics or whomever it is to define the good life for you. Better to just have like the government trying to keep unemployment low, and then we give you your money back in tax cuts, and if what you want to do is buy a TV and watch – Celebrity apprentice, like go with God. And like that, like that to me is in some ways still the fundamental challenge Keynes poses. It's not just about how much deficit spending you should do, but it's why I started this conversation with what is a point of economics, because he thinks somebody has to decide that. There has to be something, some vision of the good life that you're socially building towards. Whereas I think a lot of the people who picked up his mantle and certainly who who run these things now are very uncomfortable with that idea. Um, because you know Who's to say that John Maynard Kane sitting there telling you that Virginia Woolf's poetry and so and so's paintings are like really the way life should be lived, and that we should be pointing our our economic um artillery towards making it possible to to foster and appreciate that?
2: It's a fundamental question of um of political modernity, I think, and you know, I, I guess maybe maybe war is the fundamental question of political modernity, or maybe poverty, but but the fundamental political theory question, I I think. I I think you put your finger on it. You know, for Keynes, there's always something outside of consumer preferences that they need to align with. There's always a good life and a good society that we're trying to guide society towards. He believes he's he's a rationalist in the sense that he he believes that there are objectively good things in the world, um, that not everything is relative, that not everybody's preferences are, 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 are equal, um. He generally wants to leave people alone. He believes in very deeply in these, these sort of enlightenment liberalism values. He certainly thinks of himself as an enlightenment liberal, but he also thinks it's it's just silly. I mean, you, you can have everybody yelling at each other on Facebook or they can be reading Virginia Woolf. I mean, we, we, we know which one of these is better, right? But that is a paternalistic approach, as, as you note. The way that his successors who take him seriously as a philosopher try to resolve it, and I think Galbraith is the most successful in this, is to say, well, look. This is what democracy is for. Sure, we don't want to have a big, bad, terrible—you know—monarch telling us what to do. But, uh, but in a democracy, you know, people can express their preferences politically. The idea that the way that they want to live is expressed through the market is just silly. And using the market as an alternative to democratic uh, politicking is 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 a way of of signing us up for a, a particularly bad life. Now, Galbraith gets quite sophisticated in in his expression of 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 why that's wrong but but I think I think you it comes down to and this is the reason why I put democracy in the title of the book it comes down to whether the economy is something that's supposed to be used by democracies to to further the goals of these democratic peoples or whether the economy is itself the expression of democratic will. And Milton Friedman um, very clearly, I mean, he talked about this very explicitly in, in his book, Capitalism and Freedom, just says, look, th- the market is the expression of the democratic will. And the less government you have in the market, the better, because you just want to have you want to have the market just be the expression of, of people's preferences. And I think a lot of the Keynesians who most people who we, you know, who we read in the newspaper who describe themselves as Keynesians, the, the Krugmans and, and 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 the like, these are people who come who, who are broadly comfortable with Friedman on that, on that basic point and very uncomfortable with the implications of, of Keynes's point. And and Keynes himself was uncomfortable with the implications of it. Um, you know, he battled, he, he was constantly struggling with socialists and communists politically throughout his life. Uh, and he could never really make up his mind about, about where he was on the question of socialism. Um, but it was very clear to him by the end of his life that large sections of the economy had to be socialized if we were going to realize the type of uh, of good life that that he wanted to realize. And and so, you know, I think in the states we think of him as this guy who um, legitimizes deficit spending. In the UK, he has a very different legacy. His policy, his most significant policy achievement in the UK is socializing British medicine. I mean, he is the financial architect of the National Health Service. So I think in the US, his legacy is very much, well, he's this guy who's sort of splitting the difference between, you know, Marx and Burke, between conservatism and socialism, and he has this sort of liberal middle. In in the UK, it's much more complicated. And I, and I, I think the the implications of his thought are much more complicated. You know, some of his successors, including Joan Robinson, were very sympathetic both to the governments in North Korea and uh, and Maoist China. I'm someone who's pretty comfortable with the word socialism in general, but I, <laughs> I don't know a whole lot of socialists, at least in my circle, uh, social circle, who are comfortable with Maoist China. So there are uh, there are real dangers, uh, we should say, to to his thought. Just because you like Keynes or if you don't like Keynes doesn't solve the 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 basic governing problems that Keynes is grappling with does that make sense
3: yeah and but but here I think you get into something really tricky not just for Keynesian economics or Keynesian thought but for socialists for almost anybody who believes in small d democracy right as as the, your primary ordering principle which is what happens if you hold a vote and the people don't agree with you and I think this actually ends up fouling up a lot more of these series and than, than, than people want to recognize. Like this is a is gonna be a more controversial statement, but something I have noticed is that a lot of people who identify as democratic socialists they tend to believe that disagreement with them is somehow manipulated, that it's illusory, um, that it's just like interest advertising or false consciousness or something else. And, and over time, I've come to see that as part of, if, if you truly believe in democracy, but people often don't vote for the thing you want them to vote for or the candidates you want them to vote for, then to make your theory work, you need some way to say that the true belief, like the soul level belief of your polity is not being expressed, which just ends up creating a little bit of a hash of, of, a, of a reasonable idea of democracy. And I think this is true in Keynesianism, too. Um, it's, And by the way, it's a problem for me. I mean, it's a problem for anybody who believes in democracy. I, I don't mean to single out anybody. But you have a line towards the end of the book where you're talking about neoliberalism. And I think this is really key. You write... Pointing the finger at neoliberalism here, you're talking about sort of policy failures in the past 20 or 30 years, raises uncomfortable questions for Keynes and his defenders. Why has Keynesianism proven to be so politically weak, even among ostensibly liberal political parties and nations? The Keynesian bargain of peace, equality, and prosperity ought to be irresistible in a democracy. It has instead been fleeting and fragile. When you have a an ideology, be it of economic thought or political thought or anything else, that has a very specific idea of the good life or the good society, but you also believe that the legitimate means of directing it in that uh, aim is small d democratic, and then you often don't win elections, you end up with a really big problem in your theory.
2: Oh, absolutely. (laughs) <laughs> yes, I, I think I think uh, this is an age where we can all agree that authoritarianism. Well, I won't say we can all agree because obviously authoritarianism is on the rise around the world. But I think reasonable people can all agree that authoritarianism is is a problem. That it is bad. That it is the maybe the central political dilemma uh, of of our time. But the question is what. What do we replace it with? And and unfortunately, one of the things that is fueling authoritarianism around the world is the fact that authoritarian governments are politically popular. We are seeing authoritarian parties in other parts of the world, in the United States. I think it's fair to call uh, Trump's Republican Party an authoritarian party, but certainly in in the EU, um, we're seeing people vote for uh, for these uh, these governments that I I find just totally toxic and destructive and awful. I think the way that Keynes dealt with it was to say, well, the reason people vote for these things is because they have been denied uh, the basic sort of political and economic foundations of of a decent life. And if you provide them with those, those good things, then they won't support this type of, of awfulness, but that, that kind of becomes a, a circular argument, right? Because, at, at a certain there's no way to disprove that
3: right you need you need the good society to be in place for people to want the good society is a very might actually be true but is a is a it's not really a like it's hard to see how you get there then
2: right right and you can see why people have revolutions i think there are a lot of people who have grappled with this idea and said that that Keynes's uh Keynes's framework you know the, the strategy for Keynes is always to to try and and deal with people's material needs, first of all, and inequality, second of all, and see if that creates some sort of harmonious situation. And he has this deep faith in humanity's ability um, not only to listen to arguments and and agree to a rational course of action, but to, to to care for each other and and take care of one another and and believe in each other. That's a difficult faith to sustain when you see uh, when you confront the things that human beings have done to each other o- over the millennia. You know, and I said this to, at the end of the book. I don't I don't know what the alternative is. I, I can see all of these these problems with uh, with Keynesian thought and with democracy itself, but but the alternative is is war and authoritarianism. Well, well let me not do alternatives quite yet.
3: Let, let, let's hold alternatives for a bit because I'm going to – the one, one reason we're doing just to signpost this conversation for people so much on on this part of Keynes is that actually this whole series is going to be about the, I, the idea that post-COVID we're going to need or even potentially amidst COVID, given how we're doing, we're going to need to mobilize large parts of the economy through government action tied to a purpose. And so I want to talk about how Keynes would do that. But before we go to that, there's a part of this that I think John Kenneth Galbraith, who we've been bringing in here, is sort of uh, another player and who ends up being, to to my great delight, a much bigger part of your book than I had expected. I love Galbraith. Um, Some of his books are the most influential in my thinking, and he's not held in very high repute in the economics profession, including by a lot of liberal economists like Krugman. and yet he's somebody who, when I read his work, I think it's incredibly prescient. Um, he didn't get mathed up in the way Keynes did, although you sort of make an argument in the um, in your book that the way Keynes got mathed up and made into a more formalistic approach by people like Paul Samuelson came with real downsides. But but something Galbraith does in a lot of his mid-century books is make an argument that advertising is a very big player here. And, and he's part of a lot of people then, Walter Lippman being another, who are looking at the rise of advertising and seeing it as something that is going to distort public preferences so far, so profoundly, that it is going to be hard to even answer the question of what do people really want. And like, not only is it going to be hard to answer the question, but, but their preferences are going to be changed. And it's going to be an asymmetric effort at changing preferences. So there is not nearly the amount of money spent advertising the benefits of public parks as advertising the benefits of toothpaste. And specifically one toothpaste or another, to say nothing of sugary breakfast cereal or Lexus's. And you'll hear at some point in this conversation a break for an ad break in which I'm gonna read some ads. And so, like, this is how it's how our almost our entire informational comments is structured, really, with the exception of books, newspapers, cable news, um, social media, magazines, radio, like podcasts, like Almost the entire informational commons we share are built atop the economic structure of advertising. And so, one thing that Galbraith ends up emphasizing very heavily is that advertising is really going to change this. Advertising, in his view, is going to push people to want things economically that are not really what they should want, that are not going to, in aggregate, bring them the most happiness. And that's because it's not going to be whether there is some such a thing as a true preference. This is not going to be it. This is going to be the preferences people are spending a lot of money to manipulate and create. And like, that's not a bad thing necessarily. It's not anybody's like terrible fault, but that we should think about that when we're designing society. The idea that we should just say, well, what are people want to do with their money when somebody is telling them, like when there are a lot of people spending a lot of money telling them to buy this set of things, and then a bunch of other people spending money telling them to support tax cuts. Like what you get on the other end of that is not society's vision of the good life, but is some weird relationship between people's like base desires and then the desires that are activated by an incredibly sophisticated industry dedicated to shaping and activating particular desires and that to me speaks for a lot of these questions of democracy um and, and and economic activity where it really 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 depends what kind of like quote unquote state of nature you think public preferences are in if you don't believe that um if you don't believe they really re- actually reflect the public's deeper preferences that well it isn't to say that you have an alternative way to do it but it does create i think a healthy skepticism that we've sort of lost particularly on the economic side more than the political side like galbraith and others attacks on advertising are now considered a little bit declassé but but i think they're basically right that it was going to screw up the system in a in a, in a quite profound way
2: I think there are two two things about Galbraith and advertising, and that that, that you're um, getting at here that, that that should be should be noted. First, you're you're clearly right that Galbraith's uh, attack on on advertising uh, was <laughs> was a uh, just just would make economists' eyes roll. I mean, they they just didn't care. You get a big yawn um, from the 1970s through the through through the, the at least the crash of 2008. Um, I think the rise of social media has changed that quite a bit, though. I, I think the economics profession looks at the way that social media shapes people's preferences and the way that social media uh, engineers are are quite open about the fact that they know they're manipulating people's preferences and see quite a bit of um, of, of merit in this argument. Um, you know, th- there would be talks about uh uh, you know, about subliminal messaging and whether advertising actually, you know, changes people's minds. And, you know, it, it was always a little bit confusing to me listening to economists try to uh, untangle this knot because they'd say on the one hand, you know, markets are rational and companies you know, should do things to maximize their own profits. And on the other hand, they'd say, well, But advertising has no effect on people's preferences, and you're like, well, why do they do all the advertising then? How can the companies be rationally maximizing their profits if they're devoting all this money to advertising? The theory never seemed to hang together to me, but it didn't seem like it was the central, like a central flaw with uh, with any political theory. I just thought you know some economists were being a little bit silly. I think with the rise of social media, and I think there are a lot of a lot of very serious thinkers in the economics profession who are looking at that and saying, okay, we do have to talk about the way large actors are capable of shaping preferences in ways that um, that are undemocratic. The other point is that it's not just advertising that shapes preferences in these ways. There are power dynamics in society that are at, at root all the time. Um, Milton Friedman, who was a uh, you know, sharp critic of Keynes and also of Gar- Galbraith, was very explicit about his belief that um, a free market without any government management um, would be capable of ending war. And racism in the United States, he said, you know, it will be an economic disadvantage to you not to hire the best talent. And so if you leave black workers out of your uh, your industry, you will suffer and you won't make as much money. And the market will take care of this without any need for government uh, management of 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 these standards. So he was an opponent of the Civil Rights Act, for instance, uh, on these grounds. And I think that seems extraordinarily uh, I, I think naive would be the generous way to, to describe that today. You know, people's preferences, your ability to participate in a market and to express yourself through it um, depend quite a bit on these social relationships and power dynamics um, that exist Outside and beyond your control, um, you know, hiring and firing decisions are, are one thing. But but, you know, the condition of your schools, the uh, the <laughs> the the basic infrastructure available to your community. These are all things that affect the outcomes in, in any market uh, system. And and the idea that those problems will just naturally be solved by the 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 free expression of people's will, I, I think, is a is a very naive. um perspective and i don't think many people take it seriously anymore i think that the question as uh, did you put your finger on earlier in this conversation is how do we decide democratically what constitutes a good life and a good society and how how do we go through the political process of dismantling the things that we think are unfair in a way that is itself fair. That that's a much more difficult question. But I think for Keynes and and for Galbraith, you know, they're confronting a society that's so fundamentally unjust, that's something people can just work out. They'll figure it out. They're not super concerned with it, you know, um, for For Galbraith, at least, you know, he becomes very deeply involved in the Johnson administration and the the formulation of the Great Society. So the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, the creation of Medicare, these major big social uh, programs, which in a lot of ways, he also just amplifies the stuff that was was going on under the New Deal and democratizes it so that people of color who weren't. Uh, weren't allowed to participate in it, get to have some, some participation in these programs. But a, a lot of what we think of as the New Deal is, is really the New Deal through the Johnson administration. So that stuff all becomes very central to, to Galbraith, but he's aware that he's imposing his will on on the rest of society. And he knows that other economists think that he's sort of this uh, fancy liberal professor type who is is telling other people what to do. And he was indeed a very arrogant man. There's no doubt about it. Everybody who uh, knew either Keynes or Galbraith thought that these people were capable of, of great charm, but also just wildly impressed with themselves. And and I think you have to be wildly impressed with yourself to think that you know better for society uh, than, than the rest of society. Uh, but but that's that
0: that's politics wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy need to send dollars to your cousin in bali fast getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates join 16 million customers already using wise worldwide to learn more about how a wise account could work for you download the app or visit wise.com that's wise w-i-s-e.com wise.com
4: support for the gray area comes from burrow getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying
3: So I'm going to take a point of personal privilege before I go into my central question of what would Keynes do now, because I want to talk about the gold standard. All right. This is a weird thing about me that I'm going to confess, but I have spent more than I think a normal amount of time wondering if, had I been alive in the 30s, would I have been able to see the gold standard was a bad idea? Because here you have this policy. It's the way basically every country runs its economic, its monetary system. It is supported by the overwhelming majority of all the smart people in the era. They have like very long, lengthy treatises on why it's a good idea. And I think one of the single most important things Keynes is able to do is see that they are wrong and slowly... Haphazardly convince others that they are wrong, and you know, move the u k off it a little bit, help America move off it, like I mean, uh, eventually the gold standard dies, and it it makes almost everything else possible. So I want to talk about that for a minute. Can you explain why people thought the gold standard was a good idea? Some people still do today, but but why did they think it then? and what did why was Keynes able to see that they were wrong?
2: The reason people like the gold standard today is very different from the reason that people like yeah, the gold That's why I want to create a distinction at the turn, at the turn of the century. Um, people like the gold standard today because they see it as a way to impose uh, basically right wing social values on society. It's a way to create artificial financial scar- scarcity. Um, which makes it easier to impose uh, social hierarchies, racial hierarchies, class hierarchies, whatever. Um, you can restrict resources to different communities by saying, we just can't afford it, we'll run out of money. If, if our currency is tied to gold, um, we can't just run deficits. Uh, we, we have to make sure that, uh, that, that we're living up to our commitments under the gold standard. So That's not the way people thought about it at the turn of the 20th century. It was sort of an expression of this very utopian enlightenment liberalism. And so one of the reasons that Keynes is successful at uh, dismantling it, you know, he doesn't do it single-handedly, and most of the breakdown is is just the unworkability of the system. But one of the reasons he's successful at convincing people that it's it's a bad system is because they actually agree with his social values. They're not at loggerheads over these deeper moral and political questions. They think that the gold standard is supposed to create a society of international harmony and mutual prosperity. And when they've just lived through a world, um, which the economy Between World War I and World War II, in the United States, we think of the Great Depression starting in 1929 with the stock market crash, but for most of Europe, the Great Depression starts in 1919 as soon as World War I is over. The war economies come down and everything just goes right off a cliff and it stays there and and keeps getting worse until World War War II. So people can just see that prosperity is not happening, Um, but they the first part of that, uh, people can can convince themselves that the reason prosperity is not happening is because they've broken with gold, because all of these countries had to go off the gold standard for the sake of the war emergency. And there are economists who are saying, you know, look, this terrible world we're living through is the price we've paid for breaking the faith with this great uh, enlightened liberal project of, of the gold standard. Um, but the gold standard is tied to the vision of free trade that uh, that Keynes cherishes so much Wait, it's- sorry
3: I, I want to stop you for a second because you 're sort of dancing around like why was the gold standard itself thought to be a good idea you 're sort of getting at the like the sort of coalitions it creates, but, but like why tie your money to gold? Why not tie it to the number of trees in 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 the world like the weather like I mean what is the line right we 've found about enough gold in human history, pure gold, if you like boiled it all down to fill three Olympic sized swimming pools and something like that. It is objectively a little bit of a peculiar thing to just say we're going to pick this one metal um, and tie currencies to it. Why did people? Why did smart people think it was a good idea? That it would be a disaster to abandon.
2: Well, look if you go back far enough, there's you know the, the pound sterling is a reference to sterling silver. So the gold standard is something that is imposed um, by the British Empire because that's the way that that British politics just resolve a particular fight over uh over whether to inflate or deflate the currency it's actually a fight between Isaac Newton and and John Locke it goes back to the 18th century so th- that that is a it's just sort of a fluke of history that Locke won that battle and uh, and gold became the the standard for the British empire and the British empire then became the uh the hegemonic political power of the day so if you wanted to do business with britain you had to get on gold um so there's a very just real politic reason for why gold becomes the thing and not and not trees or, or even silver which was the standard before gold at least in in britain but people want to believe that the british imperial system is good they want to believe that the world order that exists that they live in is cap- is is not only good in and of itself, but capable of progress. That it is capable of making the world a better place. Um, they have different visions, I think, of what better means. You know, there's there's a lot of imperialist paternalism tied up in this. You know, lifting lifting the savages out of darkness. I think is is something that a lot of people are thinking of, but but not all of them. There are a lot of liberal imperialists at this point in time who think that they're. They're bringing democracy to the rest of the world and that gold is the economic system by which democracy and international comedy is uh, achieved. This is, you know, I I have plenty of my own (laughs) disagreements with this worldview, of course. But um, but, you know, look at the United States today.
3: Let let me speak up for for one second to just clarify one point, because it's still here today. Isn't it intuitive, the idea? That if governments can just print money based on whatever, right? And they're also trying to do trade with each other, then it's going to be a disaster. Like I'm I'm just having a little bit of fun with the idea that gold is a very it's an arbitrary thing to tie your currency to. But the idea that currency should be tied to something, not just the whims and wills of governments, and that all the currencies should somehow resolve down to the same thing so that you can come up with currency exchange rates and all the rest of it, there's something appealing about it, particularly if you don't trust politicians, which many people don't. And I think that's why it still has some purchase today. Back then, they're even worse at monetary policy. There are even worse at fiscal management. So the idea that like things have to be like tied to something makes some sense. Like, what's wrong with that idea? Like, what what ends up being the problem with it?
2: Oh, it ends up being the problem with it is it just doesn't it it just doesn't work. Uh, people are immiserated and and the political system ultimately breaks down. And so once the political system breaks down, uh, culminating in World War II, people are willing to come up with a different international economic model. Um, but you know th- there are these. The, the liberal ideas that are tied up in the gold standard are about you know, small government, um, leave me alone, don't let sovereigns meddle in the affairs of the people. Um, these are ideals that, look, whether you're a right-wing Second Amendment advocate in the United States or a left-wing socialist – you can get down with, right? These are ideals that are pretty broadly shared across the political community even today. So I mean that's one of the reasons why uh why gold is is so popular. And I, I just would I would point to the popularity of WTO style globalization over the last 30 years. I think it's pretty clear at this point that this project has not been a success. Certainly the idea that we were going to create more international harmony between the United States and china and and bring China into a sort of more democratic, small democratic, human rights oriented system of governance has not happened. But people believed fervently in this system for a long, long time, and we've had to get close to you know pretty much disaster multiple times for people to even start talking about whether globalization needed to be modified in some way or another. And you know, right now we we live in a world where the WTO, is essentially not functional anymore. WTO doesn't really do anything, but we still have it and people still people still have debates. You know, you listen to NPR and they talk about trade. You'll have, you know, former WTO advisors coming on and talking about what what we ought to do. And the power of that idea is bigger than the actual uh the power of that dream is 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 bigger than the the day-to-day economic results. And things have to get really nasty for people to to be willing to change the system. And even when they do, you have people like Keynes who are capable of changing some people's minds, but Keynes loses so many policy battles. It's only after he's lost that people point to him and say, ah, you were right all along. We should have listened to you.
3: What does Keynes see as the problem with gold? I mean, you you mentioned, I think correctly, that it ends up immiserating people, but, but he makes a critique. What what is it when he's trying to convince British policymakers, or for that matter, American policymakers, trying to convince Roosevelt to go off the gold standard? What does he tell them is a problem that they're going to be able to solve by going off of it?
2: Well, it depends on on which Keynes at which point in time, um, because he's a critic of, of the gold standard from, say, 1923 until 1922, I guess, and, until uh, the Bretton Woods agreement, his broad view is that gold is a, is a way of creating artificial scarcity, that this limits the government's ability to do things with the actual resources it has at its disposal. And that by focusing on monetary sort of accounting principles, instead of the real resources of society, they are losing sight of what their uh, their society is capable of producing. They think they're going to run out of money. and And in some cases, it's if they're on gold, they will. But they have all of these trees. They have all this lumber they can produce. They have all this steel they can, I guess you don't mine steel, you, you alloy it. But they have all this iron you can mine. Uh, they, they have these actual resources that can be put to use, but they have this accounting problem that exists off in the realm of money, which is being used to uh, prevent them from mobilizing their resources. And uh, by 1942, he says, you know, anything we can actually do, we can afford. But that's Keynes at his most uh, sort of radical. It, you know, by the end of his life, he's he's really broken with the economics profession um, as it existed, at, certainly at the turn of the twentieth century. Uh, earlier on, you know, I think he just thinks that this is uh, if we managed the gold standard well in nineteen nineteen or nineteen twenty 1920 or nineteen twenty one, then we wouldn't have had a need for all of the Keynesian theoretical developments in economics that that followed. I think Keynes believed that countries could come together and figure out a way to cooperate and keep the gold standard from going off the rails. And when it becomes clear that they can't, you know, by 1925, 1926, um, he starts thinking about totally different systems. I mean, he starts endorsing tariffs, uh, which makes t- totally... Totally freaks out his friends because tariffs is this, you know, the gold standard represents all of these, th- this vision of the world and ha- international harmony and stuff, but it's it's part of this broader free trade project. And so Keynes just totally breaks with that that worldview and, and is experimenting with different sorts of of policies that might be used to to fix it. But uh, because the, the world will not cooperate in the way that he thinks that it ought to, he just thinks that the gold standard cannot be... A, uh, a system by which international comedy can be maintained.
3: So that focus on real resources as opposed to the accounting that overlays real resources seems really important in a lot of Keynesian thought and then is really important for right now. And, and so I want to begin to continue following that thread through, through the rest of this conversation. And maybe I should, should ask it this way. On some level, it seems obvious that... A country can do what it can actually do, and to the extent money keeps track of it, great, but to to the extent money is actually the thing preventing it from um, productively using the skills of its people or the resources it has access to, it's a real problem. As Keynes begins to argue that the government can create productivity and prosperity that goes beyond even the amount of money it's putting into the system— that's like a big revolution. It's, I think, still the thing I think we, we recognize him for today. Like, what was the the insight at the heart of that? What did he see there that other people were having trouble seeing?
2: I think the first thing that he saw was just the political reality. He was a British citizen who wanted to alleviate all of these social ills in Britain, but Britain was deeply indebted to the United States, and so there was just no way to do what he wanted to do without bringing on deficits. So he starts. Just thinking about those, those deficits is maybe not such a bad idea, um, and he becomes more emotionally committed to his, his social vision than to his, his economic doctrine. When you get to the 1930s, though, Keynes has been thinking about economics for a long time, and he has advocated different reforms one after another that either have been rejected or have not worked. He thinks, you know, in the 1920s, that if they can just stabilize prices, for instance, that markets will work, that that supply and demand will come to equilibrium, and and democracy will flower all over the world. They can't get people to even agree to manage the gold standard in such a way that it would stabilize prices. They're they're looking at uh, at trade flows rather than than domestic prices because the world just becomes so ungovernable. Keynes thinks that there's a, there's a need to impose economic order, um, that if you don't lay down the framework for people to have the sort of basic building blocks of a decent life, a decent society, then you won't be able to do the sophisticated things that you want democracy to do. And so he he's looking at money as a tool of the state, and he starts studying ancient currencies and, uh, and says, you know, look, we actually are wrong. We think that money started you know, in 600 BC or so, when people started stamping faces on coins, actually money is this older thing. It's an account keeping uh, system that involves, you know, debts and people are lending each other wheat and, and different resources much earlier. And And this is something that arises with the state itself. And so he starts to think about the state as something that, it, and, and economics in general, is something that arises out of statecraft itself. That's people don't exist in this world where they some sort of state of nature that you hear in a lot of uh, you know sort of social contract liberal theory like Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau, so, um, Where where first there's the there's the free exchange of goods, and then then the sovereign sort of intervenes later and starts laying down the law. Instead, Keynes is starting to think about the economy as as an expression of statecraft. And and then the question becomes, well, how is the state legitimized? Because whether it's a dictatorship or a democracy starts to matter quite a bit. Keynes doesn't dwell on that for very long during his lifetime because he's preoccupied with the problems of you know the depression and war, but Galbraith does. And so that's why I spent so much time on Galbraith in the book. But the basic point is that the economy is a, cr- a creature of the state. And when you read even neoliberal theorists um, over the last couple of decades, they are increasingly open to that that point of view, saying that markets are things that are created by the state to fulfill uh, specific purposes. And that's, a, that's an important breakthrough, but it also allows you to do all sorts of you know things that we would describe as socialist, right? If the market is a cr- is a creature of the state, why why have markets at all? You know the Soviet Union didn't. There becomes a question of how you want to order society. That uh so it's not it's not easy to answer.
4: Support for the gray area comes from green light. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray
1: area. Vacations can be tricky. And 24 7 customer support means you can travel worry free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
3: We're in this position now. We have very high unemployment. We do not have fundamentally a financial panic here. What we have is an economy in which it is unsafe for people to do many of the things they did before. By the time that is no longer true, particularly in America, a lot of those businesses and infrastructures will have failed. I don't think we have, we are in any way prepared for the number of these businesses that will not survive this period. So you're going to have a lot of people whom, in addition, even once they are able to say, be a massage therapist again or a yoga teacher, the business they were part of will be gone. And it takes a lot of time to start up new businesses and rebuild clientels and all of that. And we have all these social needs, and we're beginning to build up very high deficits again. So, what do you think Keynes, looking at this situation, would tell the next president?
2: Like, what would his what would his prescription be? The biggest problem, I think, for Keynes, it's always with the caveat that it's always dangerous to you know raise the dead here and interrogate them on problems that they um, <laughs> they, they never actually encountered during their lifetime. Um, you know, Keynes is somebody who is important in the history of social thought largely for the way that he is used to legitimize policymaking after his death he he lost most of the policy battles during his lifetime um he became a major figure because people like galbraith um, and presidents like uh you know kennedy and johnson um and and later richard nixon relied invoked his name to sort of justify decisions that they were they were making so I, i think it's really important to think about what he would he would do in this moment, but he was concerned mostly with these sort of, uh, sort of psychological abstractions, things like confidence, things like uncertainty. He wasn't so much concerned with dollars and cents and, and hard deficit numbers and things like that. I think he'd look at our society and say, look, people have lost faith in this government you know, I think to some extent the election of Donald Trump is an expression of that that loss of faith. Um, but certainly, the de- disastrous performance of the Trump administration is is evidence of an even deeper loss of faith. Trump had a uh, he had that that rally a couple of weeks ago and. The thing that really struck me about that rally was not just that there was poor attendance, but that Trump was trying to rally hardcore supporters for whom wearing masks and things like that has become a sort of marker of political identity. And he still couldn't get people to come out um, to the rally. So that, to me, signified that even diehard Trump supporters didn't believe what he was saying about the pandemic and the communications that are being made. Some of those are the results of just nasty politicization from the Trump administration, but some of them are the result of incompetence among bureaucrats. Um, you know, I think the CDC has had problems not just because of who's in charge of the CDC, but because rank and file people there have dropped the ball. I think the world health organization has the same, uh, the same issue. So there's a lack of faith in expertise and there's a lack of faith in uh, the ability of, our leaders to level with us about what's really going on. So rebuilding that trust is a very tricky thing. I don't pretend to have all of the answers for that. Um, but I think you would start by giving people reliable information. So you don't say anything if you don't have something correct to say, if you're not certain about it. And you treat the pandemic First and foremost, you will not get your economy back until you deal with the public health crisis and have a plan for how to deal with the public health crisis. You know, we, we sort of went through this weird period where people were talking about reopening the economy uh, because we wanted to prevent all of the, you know, deaths of despair that happen from high unemployment, which, you know, that's an important thing to keep in mind whenever you're talking about economic policy. Unemployment's not just, you know, a couple of weeks off from a job. I mean, this this devastates people's lives. Um, but the idea that you were going to be able to, that there was some clear trade-off between economics and, and public health was just silly the whole time. We're seeing now that if you don't have the public health problem under control, the economy does not recover. So you need to deal with the public health problem first and foremost, and you have to restore people's faith in the ability of the government to handle that public health problem. But- that's quite a bit of work, right? That's, that's much more than I think any president has had to confront certainly in my lifetime. But after that, you know, we have all these other social problems in the United States. Keynes was deeply worried about inequality because he felt like it prevented societies from hanging together, that it jeopardized it it, for self-interested reasons, it jeopardized the, the, you know, British aristocratic life that he enjoyed living. He was afraid that the rabble would rise up and, and overthrow that and, and make it unavailable to people but but he 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 sees inequality as this this moral issue more than a mathematical issue you know he's he's not concerned about the technical measurements of different you know wealth and income gaps he's worried about society just basically hanging together and i think he would look at the united states and say this is a country that does not seem to be hanging together particularly well right now we're polarized I, I, some guy wrote a book about this uh I don't know if you have been through it. It's called "Why We're Polarized." It's a very astute look at. Uh, I, I try at, to avoid at...
3: discussions of polarization on the show. I find them needlessly <laughs> divisive.
2: <laughs> well said, uh, but but you know, look, it's we're we're polarized across all these different all these different metrics. That almost any way you look at American society, we're we're breaking into one or two or three different. Um, uh, I guess you don't break into one different society, but two or three or four different different societies that don't really seem like they're they're engaged in the same social project. So you gotta find a way to create a sense of 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 national purpose. Um and that's an idea that I think uh liberals in particular are very uncomfortable with in the United States. Li- I mean liberals of the broad left liberal spectrum here. Um that's something that we think of we associate with uh conservative jingoism uh with with you know the war machine and and the the invasion of iraq but we do not have a, a sort of shared set of patriotic values for a national mission right now the country is fundamentally divided in these different ways that um I think are very, very dangerous. And, you know, Keynes would have said we can attack that first with economic policy by bringing people closer together economically. You have to attack these enormous disparities of wealth between the super rich and the poor. And that's not just about getting people to a better standard of living. It's it's about making sure that they're engaged in the same political project. So, that's something that I think Keynes would be talking about, but these are all long-term issues, right? You're not going to fix inequality in the first hundred days that you're in office. The main thing is to is to make people believe in 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 that you can do it, that you are that you care about that idea, in a way that um, that I don't think our leaders have have convinced us, or at least not not over the last couple of presidencies. I want to pick up
3: on two threads in that, and then and then frame what strikes me as of the very potent choice here. So, a couple of things I think Keynes contributes to this discussion is that if your economy is not producing at its capacity, if you have if you have people, if you have machines, factories, buildings that could be utilized and are not being utilized, government has a real role where it can step in there, particularly amidst massive amounts of uncertainty. And there's so much uncertainty about the future right now. The government can do something the private sector can't. It can say credibly, we're going to do X over the next 10 years, right? We're going to spend $200 billion on road repairs and mass transit a year, every year for the next 10 years. And people more or less believe that'll happen. Whereas like the st- like, look at the stock market for two seconds right now, it has no idea what's going to happen. And of course it doesn't like it, like right, who, right. who does, right? This is like Keynes's fundamental idea that like we actually have much less certainty about the future, including markets. And we like to pretend, but now I think you get into something really tricky, which is, and it goes to our utility versus platonic philosophy conversation here, are two ways you could respond to this, you know? Let's say Joe Biden wins in November and he comes in and his economists come to him and say, look, like we have 11 percent unemployment and let's not worry about the debt and deficit right now because that would be crazy. Let's make sure money is getting into the economy. Now, one way you could do it is to say we are going to offer a huge tax cut or more stimulus checks, right? Which is what we've been doing more or less up until now, right? We we, we had these $1,200 stimulus checks and we could just say, you know what? That's gonna go out every three months as long as unemployment is in any area where unemployment is above six and a half percent, right? And that's just getting money into people's hands. And like, you have the debate then of like, whether or not the government should be spending all this money, but I think there's no real debate over like what you're doing with the money. But then if you say, well, you know what, we have all these people who are sitting around at home, we have all of these folks who had jobs who don't have them anymore, and we have this unbelievably pressing need to decarbonize our economy. And so like, let's put those things together and announce a massive Green New Deal investment plan. On the one hand, that has the value of you're building something with that money. right? You've chosen a social purpose and you're using the government to mobilize resources in its pursuit. And on the other hand, in addition to all the debates you'd have in the tax cut about like should we spend all this money and do you trust the government and how will we administer it and and all this stuff, you also have this fight over the purpose, right? Is global warming a thing? Is the Green New Deal just like a plot to bring socialism to America, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that's true for anything, right? If we said, we don't have enough affordable housing in this country, let's have a massive mobilization around building housing. We know that people can't live in the places they need to live. Like you would have all of these fights about that as a purpose, right? Is that the government's role? Is that the government's job? Like, shouldn't this be local? Like, you know, should you really be able to upend zoning laws Uh, uh, and so on? And so, my read of Keynes is that this is an incredibly potent time for the mobilization of national economic resources tied to a public purpose. But also my read of polarization literature is it's a very hard time to get people to agree on a public purpose. And so it's much easier in some ways to default to just handing out money to people, um, because at least then you don't have to fight it, right? That's something that Obama tried to do at least partially in the stimulus, where he thought it would like reduce criticism if he made a big part of it a tax cut. And so I'm, I'm curious how you think he would parse that distinction and and, and how we parse it
2: today. There are so many points that you were raising with your questions, Ezra. This is a fun interview. Um, so Keynes had this ability to kill multiple birds with one stone. Um, he probably wouldn't like that metaphor because he's, he's kind of a birder. He liked birds, so he didn't want to kill them. It's one of his big critiques about the United States is that we didn't have enough birds in our countryside for his taste. But I certainly agree with you that he would look at the climate crisis as, as uh, you know, a an absolute emergency, the way that he looked at uh, German reparations as an absolute emergency after World War One, I. I think he would also look at the breakdown of these international organizations as an emergency. I think the loss of credibility that the WHO has had and the pandemic would would bother him. I think the breakdown of the European Union would be very distressing to him. And I think that det- the deterioration of the relationship between the United States and China would, would really bother him. And I don't think he would believe that you could fix those problems with a tax cut. The way that he approached uncertainty was that you could make people believe that tomorrow was going to be better than today. But you, you couldn't do that with just pep talks. Uh, you know, Herbert Hoover tried that in, in the 1920s and early 30s. Uh, and, and people just didn't believe him. They didn't just, he just said, hey, any day now it's going to turn around and everything's going to be great. And it just kept not turning around. You had to make people feel it materially. So he would be in favor of putting money in people's pockets just to to make them feel like they were they were taken care of, um, but I don't think he would believe that that was a uh, a way of addressing the crises that that faced us. And frankly, I don't think putting people putting money in people's pockets is a way of addressing the social crisis that that we face in the United States over race. Um, you know, the racial wealth gap, income gap; those things are. Are very real. Um, but that's not the whole of, of racism in America. Part of, part of why racism remains so powerful, um, is because people live in separate worlds. We have, we have a functionally segregated society, um, and, and putting money in people's pockets doesn't end segregation. So, so you need the money. That's, that's an important part of maybe building credibility in the, in the broader project, but that alone, um, is, is not going to do the trick. The question about things like a Green New Deal and and about how to repair these international relationships, though, they all rely on the ability to have a functional economy. You cannot do a Green New Deal where you're hiring people to to you know re-engineer the American infrastructure and economy if you can't hire people to do work, if if they're gonna get killed by going out in public. So you you really do need to get. A handle on the public health crisis and on communications with the public about under what circumstances you're going to pull back and under w- what circumstances you won't. Um, so you 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 absolutely need a, a credible plan on that on that front. And I think by the time we have another president, I, I'll be very surprised if Donald Trump is president in January. Um, but I've been surprised before. By then, you know, the economy and the public health situation is going to be pretty terrible. And it will have been terrible for a long period of time. I think people will want to give the next president some credit, but you you have to do something to make him believe that he's on your side if it's Joe Biden. But then you have to then you have to you, you have to spend that credibility, that that political capital on on the broader social project, because you can only cut checks for so long and checks can only can only accomplish so much. And I think we've we've seen all of that already in the in the the pandemic, you know. People have gotten checks in the pandemic, but they're pissed off. They're really angry. Uh, you know, they, they're not just in the streets over over the the killing of George Floyd. You know, unfortunately, those types of of killings happen all the time in American society. We don't see uprisings unified across every American city as a result. I, I really think the pandemic is it is a big part of that uh, of that issue, and people don't feel like they're being treated like like full citizens. They they feel like some people are are being treated as uh, you know more equal than others. I think the way that we think of economics as being um, this this system of of dollars and cents and money and numbers uh, sort of makes us believe that if we if we put enough you know money and numbers into the problem, we're going to get an equation that balances at the end and things are going to be okay. But actual you know, the glue that keeps society together is a little more complex.
3: You introduced me to this metaphor from Keynes where he he was talking about something that I think is really relevant right now, which is the idea that you can't just um, use monetary policy and easy money to stimulate an economy when people don't want to spend the money, right? When like, if they don't see a reason to take out a loan, then the fact that interest rates are low is not going to stimulate the economy. And his metaphor is, uh, if I remember this correctly, you can't become fatter just by loosening your belt, which is a great yes, yes. <laughs> which is a great way of putting that um, something that worries me um let's say that Donald Trump loses in November and Democrats take the Senate and so they actually have the capacity to to govern i worry that debt and deficit fears are going to roar back um Donald Trump has not been following i think traditional keynesian uh, approaches on this where you know in an expansionary time he has like run up the debt on tax cuts for rich people and all kinds of dumb stuff. And so there's already a kind of high debt to GDP ratio um, for what people are, are used to. Right. And, Biden is somebody who at various times has been – he he comes out of a wing of the Democratic Party has traditionally been very concerned about debt and deficits. He listens to a lot of people who are concerned about about those issues. And that could be – if if Democrats decide to worry about that right now, which I don't think they should, it could be a real constraining factor. Now, a couple of minutes ago, you gave a line – I don't know if you were paraphrasing it was from Keynes – that anything we can do, we can afford to do. Now, if I heard somebody say that today, I would say, aha, like that's a modern monetary theorist. Like that is a, a kind of approach to, to the economy I associate with the MMT. Um, I'm not going to make you answer this one in terms of Keynes. You're an economic journalist. That's what you 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 do, even when you're not writing about Keynes. So I'm going to uh, ask it to you. Like, what do you think about MMT? And do you think that's the way sort of like that's the framework sort of he viewed
2: the economy through, or the or a framework we should view the economy through? Uh, my view of MMT is that it's a, a a bit of a slippery definition. What constitutes MMT to the extent that MMT overlaps with a honest interpretation of Keynes, I th- they think MMT makes a lot of sense. But it depends on which MMT person you're talking to. You know, <laughs> there are these Australian MMTers who just can't stand Keynes. Um, there are people like Stephanie Kelton and um, and Nathan Tankis who love Keynes. You know, I I often find myself agreeing with Stephanie Kelton and, and Nathan Tankus. I philosophy perfectly honest you know when nathan in particular starts getting into the weeds on federal reserve operations he uh he is capable of losing me so you know i don't want to speak for mmt as you know i don't want to issue a verdict on the entire field but uh, this the type of things that that certainly stephanie and nathan talk about i think are derived very explicitly from a uh, a sort of holistic reading of not just the general theory of employment, interest, and money the, the big magnum opus that everybody remembers from Keynes—but but also his treatise on money that that predated it by about six years, and that understanding where Keynes is coming from from the perspective of the role of money within the state, and and then the way that uncertainty and money uh, cause problems for modern economies—that all strikes me as is quite plausible. So I think. Their broad project, I I, I find you know, very very reasonable. Any specific issue, like anything else, you know, I I'm not going to subscribe to absolutely everything Stephanie Kelton says. Right, I, I, she might have some ideas that I disagree with. But but in general, the the view that um that we need to focus on real resources. I mean, I think they've been extremely effective at communicating that idea. Um and. You know, you you mentioned Biden. I, I actually am not that worried about Biden. The the people that I'm worried about are in the House. Um, Biden strikes me as a pretty flexible guy intellectually. Um, I don't think he has deep ideological commitments, especially on economic policy. But within the House, you know, Nancy Pelosi is a very committed um, deficit hawk, and and they recruited a lot of people who uh, take great pride in in taking the deficit seriously this is this is a moral commitment to them the way uh, you know uh, abiding by the gold standard was a moral commitment to to people in the 1920s so oh
3: man if you're worried about the house on this wait till i tell you about
2: the senate yeah right uh (laughs) you know there's this what's unfortunate is the economics profession has has actually adjusted quite a bit over the last ten years since since the financial crisis. You know, you still have the usual suspects saying the the things you would expect them to say, but there are a lot of other economists who are saying, well, you know, look, automation isn't the reason that we lost all these manufacturing jobs. Deficits don't seem to lead to inflation. It, it, you know, we we have much more uh, capacity to do what we want to do than we thought we had in 1995, um, and in a lot of ways, the political ideology is is still locked in 1995, even as the economics profession is moving is moving past it. Um, it- yeah. Can we talk about this for a second? Because I think there's something really... This was a surprising thing to me about the, the campaign.
3: If you had asked me five years ago, 10 years ago, I would have told you that Jason Furman and Larry Summers were on the issue of debt and deficits well to the right of Nancy Pelosi and, say, Bernie Sanders. And then... You have Furman and and, and, and Summers and, and others of what I would consider sort of the mainstream of the democratic economics uh, world writing these pieces about how deficits, how we should change our approach to deficits, how they clearly don't matter nearly as much. And yet Pelosi and even in his campaign to some degree Sanders are still running a very tight form of pay go, like everything you do like has to be paid for. Over the course of the period in which you're doing it now, maybe in power, they wouldn't take that. And that's a, a, a political posture for both of them. I think that's possible as well. But it, it is a striking thing to me where the democratic economists who I think used to be a constraint on these things have actually moved on the issue of debt and deficits a lot, because I think they look at the current situation and they don't see an inflation risk. And A lot of even quite liberal Democratic politicians haven't moved on it at all, possibly because they still feel themselves responding to the politics of the issue, which haven't moved. But I mean, Sanders had Kelton on his staff for a long period of time, and she remains, I think, an an advisor. I think she's on some of the task forces that that he spun up with Biden. And yet he was still when you like, I was always struck that he didn't say on more things like the answer to how we're going to pay for this is we're not like that was never something you heard (laughs) from Bernie Sanders or Bernie Sanders's camp. And you know, but that is something that uh, I think more and more Democratic economists think, at least in certain contexts to a certain extent, you can't do this with something as big as say Medicare for all because you get into a real resources problem and like money is a useful it is like an important constraint there. But you could do it with say certain Green New Deal investments or, or other things like that.
2: Yeah. Um you know, with Sanders, it's very um, it's very perplexing because of course he keeps hiring Stephanie Kelton for these things and and you you can just you know, you just know Stephanie Kelton is pulling her hair out when he would when he would say these things. But, um, you know, I think to some extent Sanders uses scarcity to sort of heighten the intensity of the conflict between the rich and the rest. If we have to take money from somewhere, we've got to take it from those guys. Right. So there's a certain populist kind of um, appeal to that where, uh, you know, we're going to we're going to get the money we're going to get it from the rich guys, the oligarchs who are wrecking the country. So not only are you going to have a better life, but those guys are going to come down, too. And you know, I think I don't want to speak for Stephanie Kelton, and everything, but Stephanie Kelton supports taxing the wealthy for the sake of inequality, but she doesn't support taxing the wealthy to be able to pay for. Her social services. She just doesn't think that that's, that's important. And in a lot of cases, the stuff we need, particularly on like the climate side, um, it, there's, you know, there's not enough money in the rich people to, to pay for it all. So you'll have to, you tax them because you want to tax them, not because that's going to, it's going gonna, it's gonna to pay for your, your goods and services. Um, I, you know, Sanders was on the budget committee for decades. So I, I just think he's been in this mindset for a long time and it's, it's hard for people to, to break those, those old habits. I, I think with, Pelosi uh, and and so many of the Democrats who've come on board. Do you remember for a long, long time the the grand bargain that Obama tried to implement in in 2011 and and was ultimately stymied by Paul Ryan on, um, where we we raised taxes on the rich and cut Social Security and, and Medicare was seen as a very virtuous thing in Washington. You know, uh, Bill Clinton tried to do it and ultimately got stymied by the uh, by the Lewinsky scandal. Um, it, it It was seen as uh, even even George w. Bush tried to do it in his own way the The idea that the responsible thing is to to stick it to the poor in in these entitlement programs but also stick it to the rich by raising their tax rates a few points uh this is responsible governance is just deeply ingrained in Washington in this way that it's not ingrained i think in the in the public at large it, there's there's a separate community that that thinks about these policy things that thinks the rest of the world thinks about policy in this particular way. And they, they've been thinking about it for so long. It's just, it's, it seems irresponsible to think about it any other way. And I get really frustrated by it because obviously I'm not a huge fan of the grand bargain and I don't like Pago. But, you know, this is a common thing. And usually it takes a disaster to get people to break from, from that um, orthodoxy. You know, the gold standard wasn't just, about gold and about exchange rates it was about you know what what seemed reasonable to people they were really really enamored with this this way of of managing the economy and they could not be made to to break from it until it broke itself and so it may be the case that the coronavirus crash is the thing that 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 breaks and and makes everybody uh Change, change their minds. I, I have a hard time imagining a worse economic disaster because this is going to be with us for years. And, uh, you know, I covered the 2008 financial crisis as a banking reporter. So, I, you know, like I know how crashes work and we, we're talking about this as if it's a, a viral thing. But at a certain point, you know, if you lose confidence in the financial system, things can get even worse. So the the, the capacity for this economic damage to build on itself is, is extremely dangerous and, and out there. I just have a hard time understanding this this generation of politicians. It feels to me like the public has moved past them, even if they're kind of afraid. Uh, I felt like the primary was a, a a strange experience where the Democratic electorate was just it was just afraid the whole time. You know, the, you, you would see these polls that show people in the Democratic Party overwhelmingly supporting Medicare for all. But as soon as Elizabeth Warren starts backing it, for instance, um, they run away from her. Um she goes from being the most popular candidate in the race to the least popular candidate in the race. Uh, it, it it felt to me like the 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 public just doesn't believe that progress is possible in this way. That is uh, that that I think a crisis like this is extremely dangerous because it it can compound that feeling. One
3: thing that hits both directions of this, both the sort of Keynesian purpose driven economics, but also things like MMT, where one of the key ideas there is that. Look, tax increases have a role, but the role they have is that as inflation begins to go up because you're using too many real resources, you use tax increases and other kinds of fiscal tools like that to slow the economy down, which is something that we've done before during wars, and you know came up in actually comes up in your book a little bit around war. But one of the warnings of Keynes or the um, themes of it is you can't take the politics out of economics. And when I look at the world from that perspective, what I see is how many bad political decisions we make in an effort to protect economics from politics, but also how many good decisions we can't make because our politics doesn't quite work, right? People don't, among other things, trust that they can get agreement on a big national purpose. And so it's easier to come up with a stimulus bill or an economic mobilization bill that doesn't try to ask that question, or sure, there's a lot to be said for an approach to the economy that takes real resources more seriously than kind of the, the, the money fight abstraction for it. But if you don't believe that in the teeth of inflation, you could use these tools to slow, to slow the economy down, well, then that's a reason you would want the Federal Reserve to retain that power because like they could just jack up interest rates and you begin to break the back of inflation and, 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 and keep the economy boundaries. Like, as part of our effort to either insulate economics from politics in one view of it or our, as as part of our inability to restrain economics through politics, we end up in a lot of second best solutions or third best solutions because we don't have the decision making capacity and the responsiveness to marry our economic management and our political decision making in real time.
2: You know, I, I think one of the... Uh... One of the issues that people got to sort of tangentially around this during the primary was talking about what to do about the Supreme Court, um, because even if you do get you know, just just to be clear here, guys, the Huffington Post guy doesn't like Donald Trump and is in favor of Democrats winning the next election. Um, but but, you know, even if even if you do get Democrats in charge of the Senate and and the presidency, uh, it's not at all clear that the Supreme Court is willing to cooperate with any of the things that need to happen in order to save the, the, the planet from, you know, climate death. Um, It's certainly not clear that the Supreme Court would be willing to cooperate on a a desegregation agenda. It's certainly not clear that the Supreme Court would be willing to to, to cooperate on a a new sort of international uh, vision for free trade that breaks from the WTO order. So all of these big problems that that exist are things that the court would be exercising uh, a sort of undemocratic check on and so uh, people were talking about supreme court reform or packing the courts that's something i think is necessary for for getting to where we we need to go to save the planet but we have to be clear what we mean by that we're we're talking about an undemocratic solution to an undemocratic problem packing the courts is just it's just allowing uh the biden administration to to run roughshod over the uh the judicial system um but if you don't do that, uh, you know, the world ends. So I I think these these big questions about democracy um, are going to be with us for a long time. And I don't have a grand theoretical answer to them. Um, I, I think I think you, you have to treat the crises in front of you. And do your best, Um, but I I think you know what particular decision makes sense in uh, in one year on one issue is not necessarily going to provide us with a useful principle to appeal to for another decision six months down the road. Um, I think we're entering. uh, We've been in, frankly, an age of of crisis for the last fifteen years, at least. And uh, and those crises are going to accelerate. What what coronavirus is going to do is not just about unemployment. I mean, there are international systems and alliances that are going to break down. There are wars that will start over this. Things are going to get really, really difficult. And the next president will have an awful lot on, uh, on his plate. All right.
3: Well, if you don't have a, a single theoretical path forward, do you at least have three book recommendations you can give to the audience? <laughs> uh,
2: yes, yes. Yeah. Um, uh, one of my favorite books on um, that that I read do- doing the research for this this book was a book called Globalists um by uh, a historian named Quinn Slobodian. It's a history of neoliberalism. and uh, and it discusses sort of where the theoretical uh, and political life of neoliberalism comes from. I just think it's really readable but also extremely detailed and rigorous study of people like uh, Friedrich Hayek and uh, and Milton Friedman. Another one is a book called The Deluge by Adam Tooze. Uh, Adam Tooze is a historian at Columbia. Um, I often disagree with him on policy points and interpretive points, but he is just, I, I don't know if there's anybody better doing financial history um, out there. He is an extremely rigorous researcher who looks at Economic crises as crises of internationalism and foreign policy, and I think we're kind of accustomed to looking at economics as this this sphere that's divorced from other stuff, from social policy and from foreign policy. And Tous's work really shows the way economics and domestic economic decisions are tied up in foreign policy decisions. It, the, the deluge is about the, the period between the wars, um, between the World Wars. Um, his book "Crashed" is also just a fantastic history of, of the financial crisis and. I'm a big sci-fi dork. I absolutely love uh, the space opera Nova by Samuel R. Delaney. I think it's it's just a terrific read. I'm going
3: to add one book recommendation to this. We've talked a lot in this show about John Kenneth Galbraith, and Richard Parker wrote a Galbraith biography a number of years ago that's one of my... Don't exactly want to say it's like my top five favorite books, but it's definitely one of my favorite biographies ever. And I really people want to learn more about him because I think he's a somewhat unjustly neglected uh, economic and liberal thinker in the 20th century. Uh, I really, really recommend the Parker biography of Galbraith.
2: So good, it's so good.
3: (laughs) It's so good. Your book is a price of peace, Zach Carter. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Ezra. Thank you to Zach for being here. That is the first episode in the series. More episodes will be coming out every Thursday until we are done. We're going to be looking at climate change um, and how to rebuild or run a Green New Deal. Uh, that's going to be a really good episode. We're looking at um, kids. We're looking at UBI and uh, cash transfers and give, just giving people the, the the wealth to rebuild the economy themselves. So there's a lot coming in this. Um, stay tuned. As always, thank you to Rajee Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing. The Ezra Plan Show is Vox Media podcast production.
5: Support for this show comes from Vanta. Dealing with loads of spreadsheets, juggling different tools, and having to do manual security checks—it can be a headache to keep up with today's compliance and security programs. Vanta is the trust management platform that wants to simplify things and bring all your trust building efforts under one roof making growth smoother for your whole organization. Vanta lets you automate up to 90% of compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Strengthen security posture and reduce third-party risk. Get $1,000 off Vanta when you go to vanta.com slash vox. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash vox for $1,000 off Vanta. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com podcast or wherever you listen.